So, uh, so we continue the, the seventh principle, uh, which we had begun last week. Seventh principle has to do with uh, Moshe Abenu uh, being the father of all prophets. And we're going to discuss that, uh, that terminology, that, uh, that phraseology, hopefully in a bit. But we were, uh, we were enumerating the different ways by which Moshe Rabbeinu's uh, nevuah, how his prophecy was superior to all other prophets. So we discussed one of them in terms of uh, whether there was the communication was via an intermediary or not, that uh, for Moshe Rabbeinu, it was direct. Through all the other Nevi'im, it was, there was some sort of intermediary. So we're not going to review all of that. But now the second area was Moshe Rabbeinu had the ability to communicate with HaKadosh Baruch Hu while fully awake. So that was something which was, uh, which was unique. Generally, uh, all the prophets, even though you don't, you don't get that sense when you read through Tanakh that all the other Nevi'im were sleeping or were napping or in some sort of deep trance-like state where it seemed that they were sleeping, but all the other Nevi'im, they, they didn't have the ability, they were, weren't close enough to Hashem to be able to communicate directly while in a, a state of being awake. They had to like put the body to sleep in a sense. So they had the mind, just the mind would be uh, fully active. Uh, you know, you may call it theta, I think is uh, the hypnotic state or something like that. So they may have been in theta when they went ahead and they had this, uh, their, their prophecy. But Moshe Rabbeinu was able to go ahead and pull that off while he was, uh, while he was awake. Now a third difference is the fact that for most other Nevi'im, so when they had Nevoah, it was a traumatic, traumatic and exhausting experience. It's something which, which left them depleted and left them completely worn out. And, uh, and, and, uh, and it was a difficult, it was difficult on the, uh, on the body. They would lose, lose their strength and they would actually become frightened because they were close to death. But for Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was receiving his prophecy, there were no side effects whatsoever. It wasn't, uh, he was able to do it, like we say, that it was kepanim upon him, that they was able to speak to HaKadosh Baruch Hu face-to-face as one speaks with a friend, and it didn't have any negative impacts. There was no lingering effects of the nevuah, which impacted his being subsequent to the, uh, to the nevuah. I have a, uh, a friend who's uh, somewhat into, uh, into Kabbalah, is actually very into the intellectual part of Kabbalah. Uh, and I asked him once uh, earlier this year whether or not he's done any uh, meditating. So he said, uh, I asked him if, uh, sorry, I asked him if the Kabbalah that he knows, that he's close, close with, do they meditate? He said they would never admit it. So then I said to him, do you meditate? He said, I have, but I really don't like to do it because it's so exhausting. He said that he was tired for three or four days afterwards, because for them, it's not meditating where you would see like on a YouTube video or something like that, just follow your breath and breathe in and out and, uh, you know, something like that. He said that it was, it, it was the most intense concentration and it's something which is completely exhausting. Uh, and he said it lingered, the exhaustion lingered for a few days afterwards. That's why he's not, uh, it's not something which he does with any regularity. That's what he says is the real meditation, not the, uh, the fake uh, you know, meditation, which, uh, which others do the commercial meditation. But that sounded familiar in terms of the difference between Moshe Rabbeinu and the other Nevi'im in terms of those effects. And then the fourth thing was, the fourth difference was that all other Nevi'im, there was no way that they could initiate conversation with Hashem. They had to work on themselves to make themselves receptive, that they could be a receiver of nevuah, 
that they that Hakadosh Baruch Hu would feel comfortable communicating with them, but ultimately they did not control the beginning of the conversation. They didn't have God's number. If God wanted to communicate, He called them, but they uh, but God's number was blocked, <laughs> as it were, and therefore they could not go ahead and initiate the conversation with Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Moshe Rabbeinu was unique in that regard, in that he could go ahead and he could begin a conversation with uh, with Hakadosh Baruch Hu. So those are the four primary differences between the Nevoah of Moshe Rabbeinu and the Nevoah of all of the other, uh, all the other Nevi'im. Now, this is something that, um, that uh, uh, sort of reinforces something that we have been saying throughout this series on the, uh, the 13 principles. And we've been saying that uh, one of the things which uh, we, we <coughs> excuse me, we highlighted, especially in the first five principles, had to do with the power and the concentration, concentrated power of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's, uh, spiritual uh, state of being. None of those terms are really applicable to God, but we'll just use it as an anthropomorphic type of, uh, type of thing. So, um, so everybody was, uh, was able to go ahead, all, all the prophets had to work on themselves as we, as we discussed, had to work on themselves, elevating themselves spiritually and their personality and pushing down their ego and nullifying themselves, being mevato themselves to a Torah Baruch Hu. Everyone went, all the Nevi'im went ahead and did that, but their physical being, they never rose to such a high level that their physical being was essentially not present. So being that they always maintained some level of physicality to them, that's why if you remember we use the term aspaklaria she'ena me'ira, they never had a completely clear view of Agarish Baruch Hu. It was always a little bit uh, fuzzy, it was translucent or something like that. So that was due to, that was due to the ongoing presence of the physicality. So as a result of that, when they had, even when they had nevuah, it was a uh, it was a meeting of spirituality and physicality, and in the rock paper scissors of spiritual things, spirituality always that's going to be the paper over the rock. So it's always going to win out over the physical, and that's why the physical ended up being exhausted as a result of that because they didn't have the koach because the spiritual experience was too overwhelming for the body. Moshe Rabbeinu, who was un of Mikol Adam, Moshe Rabbeinu, however, who was more humble than everybody else, and he had done more to nullify his ego in his physical uh, state of being than anybody else. So for him, the spiritual interaction that he had with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, where he had this, uh, the communication, it didn't, do, it didn't impact his physical being at all, because his physical being was essentially non-existent in the first place anyways. So there was nothing really to become um, uh, uh, worn out, and there was nothing to become exhausted, being that he didn't have much of the uh, the, uh, the the uh, much of a physical being anyways, it was a complete bittel yeshus. They would say you would find in Hasidish's farm. It was a complete nullification of his uh, of his of his essence. And once we understand that, and the Rambam actually says the Rambam uses the terminology that Moshe Rabbeinu was akin to an angel in this regard akin to an angel, because an angel we see more as a, obviously an angel has some level of physicality to it, or it's not completely spiritual, because otherwise it would be God. So it, it's, it, it has some level of something there, but its dominant feature is going to be its, uh, its uh, spiritual uh, uh, essence. So Moshe Rabbeinu also, the Rambam says, that Moshe also was uh, uh, similar to an angel in that regard. 
in that his physical being did not get in the way at all of his spiritual pursuits and the spiritual heights which he which he was able to achieve, and that was something which was uh, was uh, was unique about Moshe Rabbeinu. And now, with that, with that understanding, we can appreciate what Chazal tell us regarding the actual giving of the Torah, which we read about in Parshas Mishpatim not too long ago, and we read about in Parshas Yisro not uh, not too long ago. That in the the Chazal tell us that the that that uh, Moshe Rabbeinu Torah Tzivalanu Moshe that the Torah was given to us by Moshe. So it's well known that the gematria of the word Torah is 611. The tough is 400, the resh is 200, is 600. And then you have a hey and a vav, five and six is 611. So we would expect that when we say Torah Tzivalanu Moshe, it would be Taryag Tzivalanu Moshe or something like that. We should change around the word Torah somehow to accommodate those additional two. It's like you're so close to getting the perfect gematria of 613, you're off by a mere two. Even in gematria, you're only allowed to be off one. So how do we go ahead? So why is it 611 rather than 613? So Chazal tell us because the first two of the Aserah Sadibros, Klai Yisrael heard directly from Hashem. What happened? Hashem says, going like those we shown him, Anochi Hashem When Klai Yisrael has this spiritual interaction with God, and they had not elevated themselves to such a high spiritual level as of yet, they were still very much physical beings. They were so overwhelmed by the spiritual experience that their souls left them. They lost their lives. And Akash Baruch Hu had to go ahead and revive their souls, put their neshamas back in. And then he went ahead and he gave the second of the Aseris Adibros. And once again, they had the same experience that their souls left them because the spiritual experience was so overwhelming and over, over uh, 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 powerful. And after the second time that they had lost their lives and Hashem had revived them, so they said to Moshe Rabbeinu, listen, this is too much for us already. We can't handle all of this death and then coming back alive and dying and then coming back alive. From now on, Moshe, you go get the Torah, get the other 611. We'll be waiting here on the, and we'll get it on the return. We'll get it on the rebound or something like that. So that's why it's Torah Tzivalanu Moshe, that Moshe himself gave us 611 mitzvahs because two of them were given to us by HaKadosh Baruch himself. But what, what's relevant, what's important for us in, in our discussion now is this idea of why Klai Yisrael kept dying every time they went ahead and they heard one of the Aseris, they heard one of the two Aseris Adibros from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the reason is, is because the same reason that the Nevi'im would be frightened and would be worn out by the experience of having Nevu, of having this communication with Hashem, despite the fact that they had achieved such a very high spiritual uh, uh, stature. So for the rest of Klai Yisrael, who were nowhere near that level, we say that they reached the 49th level, but they weren't at that level of Nevi'im, that they had completely nullified who they were. And that's why the experience was something which left them with the, the, their neshama not able to be contained within the body because the spiritual uh, uh, infusion which they got was so great and their body had not yet been elevated and therefore, the body couldn't handle the potency or the power, the concentration of the spirituality, and therefore they had to split apart. They had different viscosity. We'll go ahead and we'll get scientific over here. We have some scientists over here. So we'll go ahead and the viscosity didn't allow them to mix together. And therefore, apparently the, uh, the spiritual side is more buoyant, less viscous, more viscous. It floated up, it went up. Uh, so therefore the spiritual part went up and left behind just the physical body Without the uh, without any uh, spirituality uh, uh, left behind, 
So that is that gives us now that that, that insight into what was happening with uh, with Kaiso and why they kept the uh, davening. Okay, so now let's go back to uh, to explore one of the uh, the things which which we mentioned at the beginning today, that uh, the Rambam uses the term what he wants to describe the uh, preeminence of Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy. So when he goes ahead and he says that he was the father of all Nevi'im, both before him as well as after him. His terminology in Hebrew is, that he is the father, actually he wrote this to Rick and it was translated into Hebrew, but the Hebrew translation of the Rambam is, that he is the father of all prophets, both those who preceded him as well as those who followed. And this is something which is a surprising thing for the Rambam to go ahead and say, to use that terminology of Moshe Rabbeinu being the Av HaNavim, being the father of a Nevi'im. We understand this principle has emphasized very clearly to us that Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest of all prophets. So that is an indisputable thing and nobody's questioning that. But what is a little bit difficult to understand is why would he go ahead and describe Moshe Rabbeinu as the father of all the Nevi'im? When we talk about father of all the Nevi'im, we talk about the father of something, the father of modern medicine, Stuja Shoda. Uh, when we talk about the, you know, the, the, uh, the father of accounting or something like that. So the father, when we are going to assign the term father to somebody who's going to be at the beginning of a series. So you would say that Avram Avinu, he was the first, he was the Av, he was the first of all of the, uh, the, the Avos, of all of, our, uh, of our, our, our forefathers and our foremothers. So using the term Av is usually reserved for the first of a series, not the person who is the greatest of the series. So Moshe Rabbeinu, nobody claims that Moshe Rabbeinu was the first Navi. Certainly, Adam communicated with uh, with God. We would assume that he would uh, qualify as a Navi. Noah certainly communicated with God. He would be uh, he would be a Navi. Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Sarifka, uh, Rachalea, all of them had prophetic experiences, and all of them preceded by Moshe Rabbeinu, some of whom preceded him by a couple of uh, a few centuries. So if Moshe Rabbeinu is not the first of all of the prophets, he's somewhere in the middle over there. So why is the Rambam going ahead and assigning him this title of being the father of all prophets when he was not near the, uh, he was not, he was actually not the, uh, the first. So to answer this, uh, this question, uh, to, or, or to begin to answer the question, so Rav Yaakov Weinberg goes ahead and he tells a story. Some of you may be familiar with the story. Uh, if yes, so it'll be review. And if not, it'll be a good story to, uh, to keep in mind. And it's not something which uh, he talks about it from a long time ago, but it's something which, uh, you know, sadly, as Rebbe's die, so this happens more commonly than it uh, used to in the past, I guess. But it says that a great uh, Rebbe passed away, leaving behind two sons. And each one of the two sons thought that they were the one who was supposed to take over their father's mantle of leadership. They were going to be the next Rebbe. And they got into a bait a debate about which of them is going to be the next uh, Rebbe. And not only did, uh, did they have a debate, but everybody in the community went ahead and took sides. Some wanted this one to be the Rebbe, some wanted this one to be the Rebbe. You had a, 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 a division in the community straight down the middle between who wanted this son to be the Rebbe or who wanted this son to be, uh, to the, that son's going to be the Rebbe. 
which son is going to be the, the Rebbe. So you had this clear machlokas which was going on, who is going to go ahead and be the, uh, the Rebbe. And uh, since the original, the deceased Rebbe had not left behind any instructions or any guidance about how to do so, so seemingly they were in gridlock and there was no way they were, to, they were going to be able to resolve this matter. And for weeks, there was this ongoing debate in the shul and the schools and every, every, all the chassidim arguing back and forth about which one is more qualified, which one is less qualified, who is actually going to be the one with the title of Rebbe and who not. And then one day, one of the sons uh, approaches the elders of the town and he tells them, listen, my father appeared to me last night in a dream. And in the dream, he told me that I am the one who's supposed to take over the, the uh, mantle of leadership. I'm the one who is, uh, is going to replace him as the Rebbe. And as he went ahead and he announced that to the elders, so there was a, a, a silence which fell over the crowd. The crowd had been debating once again about who's going to be over the Rebbe. And as a result of that, nobody, uh, nobody was saying anything. And seemingly, if the Rebbe himself had come to one of the sons and told him, yes, you're going to be the, uh, the next Rebbe, you're going to be the one who's going to replace me. So that ends the debate. The debate is seemingly solved, the matter is finished, and that is the end of the story. Except there was one little old man sitting in the corner, and he heard one of this, uh, this son go ahead and say that his father appeared to him in a dream and told him that he's going to be the Rebbe. And he said, and I'll read the way I have it in my notes. said, young man, if your father had truly wanted you to become the new Rebbe, he should have appeared to us in our dreams, not to you in your dream. In other words, that the fact that you are coming along as an individual and you are claiming that he came to you in a dream, we all have dreams like that, that we think somebody's appearing to us and telling us that we're going to be the Rebbe or whatever it is. That doesn't prove one iota of anything whatsoever. If, if the Rebbe really wanted us to know that he wants you to be the, uh, the Rebbe, he would have told all of us. And being that he didn't appear to all of us in our dreams, so your dream is highly suspect and is completely unreliable at all. And therefore the matter is not resolved in any way, shape or form. So that is the marshal which Rav Yaakov Weinberg uses to now begin to explain why the Rambam would go ahead and use this terminology that Moshe Rabbeinu is the Av Hanavim, that he is the father of all of the uh, the prophets when he actually was not the uh, the first. So, uh, uh, so therefore, if God, the same expectation is true that if God wants to uh, wants a prophet to go ahead and communicate His will to mankind, right? If there's going to be somebody who's going to speak in the name of God, that, uh, that, uh, that he is the representative of God and God is communicating via that representative to the rest of mankind. So who are we going to expect that God is going to go ahead and uh, tell us that this one is the appointed one? Is he going to speak to that appointed one and just tell him privately? Or he's going to tell all of us that he has entrusted this person to now be his faithful uh, uh, spokesman to go ahead and share his position and his thoughts and his uh, his morals and all of those and all of those things. So, if it's going to be reliable, it has to be that God has to appear to everybody and tell everybody, "This is my man," and you're all going to follow him and you're all going to listen to him because he's representing what I say. And if an individual comes along and says, yeah, God spoke to me. I had a dream and God told me something last night and he asked me to go ahead and share it with the rest of you. So that's not really a reliable presentation of, of material. 
because who's to say? We have no evidence that that's true. If God really wanted to tell us that, he's got to tell that to us and not to, uh, not to you. Yeah, Alan. But then, okay, all the Nevi'im in Tanakh, they said, God went out and said, God spoke to me and he told me to tell you this. Yes, we're, get, we're getting to that. We're going to get there. One second. So now, before we get to the other Nevi'im, first of all, we're just doing uh, religion. So now, uh, it's, it's known that of all the religions in the world, so only in Judaism, is there a claim to have had such a beginning? In other words, that the event of Har Sinai, the event that stand, of all of the nations standing at Har Sinai, in witnessing the communication between God and Moshe, and then from Moshe to the Jewish people. So what we all saw was Moshe didn't come by himself and say, I spoke to God and God told me to tell you, but everyone in Klai Israel had the experience seeing that Moshe Rabbeinu was the chosen one as the spokesman for God. And he is the chosen one who's going to bring the Torah from Shemayim down to Aretz. And being that we all saw, we all had the experience, we all heard HaKadosh Baruch Hu putting his faith and trust in Moshe Rabbeinu and his, uh, his stature and his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his accomplishments, so that now tells us, that gives us the confidence that what is that Moshe Rabbeinu actually is the God-appointed leader to go ahead and transmit Torah. Yes, Alan. What about, what about all the stuff before that, when Hashem spoke to Moshe on the bush, and, and now when Moshe goes to the people and said, God told me to t- take you out of Egypt? Uh, yeah, so, uh, so when I swing back around, if I don't remember to say that, remind me, and I'll get uh, I'll, I'll get back to that. I, I will answer that too. So, but we know that other religions, certainly the major religions, so there's no such claim that there were millions of people who witnessed the the moment of revelation upon which the entire religion is based. Right, Christianity, you had maybe one person, maybe a handful of people claim to have seen uh, the resurrection uh, in Islam. I think it's just, I don't even think they claim any more than Muhammad coming out of a cave and claiming that he had communication with God and there is a, with Allah and there is the new whatever is going to be. <coughs> and I think that all of the uh, subcategories of Christianity where there were prophets along the way with revelations. So nobody's claiming that it was a revelation which took place uh, in the presence of the entire nation of people. It's, all, it's generally going to be one individual's prophecy. And at most, you're going to say that it's going to be a couple of people. And the reason why you would, keep, you, you would have an interest in keeping it to a small crowd is because you may be able to manage the information of a small crowd. But once you go ahead and you try and convince a million people that they had an experience which they didn't experience, so if you try and go ahead and put forward that claim, somebody amongst those, uh, amongst those millions is going to be the contrarian who's going to call you out on that and say, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't even know what Harsinai is. I didn't see any sounds. I didn't hear any uh, light. Uh, none of that stuff happened. I don't know where you guys are making this up from, but it's absolutely not true. There's no way you could pull off, as they always say, there's no way you could pull off such a, a, a full-scale lie of millions of people claiming to have had a shared experience, a shared religious experience, in the event that that didn't actually take place. It's just too absurd of a lie to be able to pull off because uh, it just wouldn't work. It, it would be, uh, it's, it's on a much bigger scale, but it would be the same thing as attending a Cubs game 
Cubs get blown out 10 to 2. And the guy in the loudspeaker on the uh, the PA comes out after the game and says, listen, I know you all know that the Cubs law got blown out 10-2, but when you walk out of Wrigley Field, tell everybody that the Cubs blew them out 10-2. So how long is that story going to, uh, is going to last? Are they going to be able to pull off such a lie like that? And that's only 25,000 people, 30,000 people. You can't get 30,000 people to all agree to lie about something which did not happen. And certainly when you multiply that out to, into the millions, so there's no way that that's going to be. And we know that in Jewish history, we had, there were, the, the Gemara talks a lot about different heretical groups, different heretics, which were there, which weren't that, you know, they believe, they do believe in Torah Shabbat Peh, they don't believe in Torah Shabbat Peh. All those groups with their opposition to Torah Shabbat Peh and how far the Gemara goes to oppose them, none of those groups ever claimed that the whole Exodus story and the whole Ma'an Torah story was false. None of them came along for hundreds of years, for thousands of years, even with all of these dissenting groups in Judaism, from authentic Judaism, nobody claimed that those events were made up, were historical fiction. Everybody agreed to that. The question was, yes, Torah Shabbat Peh, no Torah Shabbat Peh. So those are details, but the essential uh, story, so they went ahead and they, uh, they, uh, they agreed to. And in this regard, this is something which is, uh, again, Rav Yaakov Weinberg emphasized very strongly. He said that it's true that Judaism also has a leap, uh, a leap of faith because there are events which happen over the course of Jewish history. And there are events which happen even in our personal lives, which we don't understand. They make no sense. It seems to defy everything which we know about God. God is supposed to be loving. God is supposed to be caring. How could there be a Holocaust? How could there be children born with debilitating and uh, life-threatening uh, diseases and conditions and whatnot? All of the different, the difficult circumstances which we've all had and we've uh, seen about that we've heard about with others, it leaves us questioning how could this be representative? How could this occur if there's a truly loving, caring parent in Shemaim who's out there? So at that point, our bitachon comes in, uh, our, our faith comes in, our, our, our trust really comes in. And we say, listen, I don't have the answers to the question, but I believe, I believe that everything which HaKadosh Baruch Hu does is for the best. And I just, I must not have all of the information, all the relevant information to be able to arrive at a conclusion and say, this is representative of a loving God. It's not representing of loving God. I, I just don't know because I don't have all the information. That's where our leap of faith occurs. But the foundation of why we believe in God and why we believe in Torah, that's not a leap of faith. Because that's based on the experience of millions of people at this particular historical event, which, as we said, it's absurd to make the claim in the first place. And not only is it absurd to make, to make the, the, the assertion in the first place, but it's something which went on for centuries and centuries and centuries. Nobody challenged the historical accuracy of the fact that we were slaves in Mitzrayim and we were taken out and we stood in Har Sinai and we received the Torah and all of those things. With all of the dissent that there was in Klai Yisrael, nobody uh, throughout the time of the Mishnayis and the Gemara and all of that, nobody went ahead and questioned those, uh, the, 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 those events. So our leap of faith, we begin, our first step is on solid ground. There is a God, there is a Torah, we are, the, uh, we are God's chosen people. How we understand particular details of history and events which take place, that's where our leap of faith comes in. When it comes to the other religions, to believe in the first place, you already have to take a leap of faith. Christianity begins with that leap of faith that Jesus was resurrected. 
if you lose that, and there's no evidence to that, it's just a claim. So if you lose that, then the whole thing has nothing to rely upon. There's not, it can't, it's not built on anything other than a claim of this miraculous event to which there's no evidence that, and not even a, a reliable claim of evidence or a reliable claim of experience by a group of people which would lend uh, credibility to such a claim. And the same thing for the other religions, you could go well, you could go through them. Now is not a time for comparative uh, religious uh, studies, but that's going to be true of, of all of them. So we begin on this very firm step. And it's, as we said, it's going to be the details of how God runs a world where we're sort of left scratching our head, wondering what it is, uh, how, how are we going to make sense out of this? Seemingly, it doesn't make any sense. And that's where our leap of faith comes in. So now... With that in mind, those two pieces of mind, I'm getting closer, Alan. So with those two, uh, those, those two pieces of mind, so this is what we mean, Rev Weinberg says, when we go ahead and we declare Moshe Rabbeinu to be the father of all prophets, to be the Av HaNavim, the, 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 the most prominent of the Nevim. Because in Hilchos Yisodei HaTorah, so the, uh, the, uh, in the Rambam's laws about the foundations of Torah, so in the seventh chapter there, he discusses how one goes about proving that they are a authentic card-carrying licensed member of, uh, of, uh, of the prophet union or something like that. They are a licensed prophet something. I don't know what, what other uh, uh, um, letter we'll put after their name, but an LP. So how does one prove that they are, uh, we'll say LAP, a licensed authentic prophet? So how do you go about uh, doing that? So the Rambam there stresses that if somebody comes along, claims to be a Navi, and to prove his claim, goes ahead and does some miraculous thing like splitting a sea or having the sun stand still or anything of a, you know, those, uh, those parlor tricks that people do all the time. So if a prophet goes ahead and pulls off one of these miraculous things, so the Rambam says it proves nothing that this person is an LAP, a licensed authentic uh, prophet. We're not impressed by that at all, because as we know, and certainly we know this more now than we did in the past, that miracles can be performed through magic and trickery. And even miracles in the name of religion happen all the time in the, in, in the name of religion. And it is ultimately, it's just a parlor trick. Uh, he died this year, the amazing Randy uh, made a, a large part of a, the name for himself debunking these people, and he had a particular um, uh, sinna, I don't know if I would use the word hatred, but a particular sinna for those people who would go ahead and they would do it in the name of religion, because number one, it was just a way to line their own pockets with money, and number two, people with very serious illnesses would go to these faith healers, and they would think, they would be tricked into thinking that the faith healer actually healed them, and in the meantime, they wouldn't get treatment. They wouldn't get valuable life-saving treatment, which could have saved their lives. And by the time they realized that they were really fooled and whatever the faith healer did for them was absolutely nothing, it was already too late. It was too late for the treatments to then be effective. The disease had spread too far or whatever. And he just had no patience for that, uh, for that whatsoever. And you could see him once in a while, he would like, there was the, the one fellow, there was a fellow from the Philippines who was doing like these, uh, removing tumors, removing tissue out of people just with his hand. So a person would lie on the table, no anesthesia, he would reach in and then they'd get all bloody and he'd be pulling out organs and throwing them away. And then he wipes everything up and then you wouldn't see a, a trace whatsoever. 
So the amazing Randy was able to do the same thing. He was able to pull off the same. It's just sleight of hand. You know, it's just, it's messier than with a deck of cards because there's stuff oozing all over the place. But ultimately it was no different than any other um, uh, um, like coin magician or close-up magician who's able to go ahead and with sleight of hand is able to pull things out of seeming, uh, seemingly uh, nowhere. So the Rambam also was on to such people. And he says that to prove that you're a Navi by doing a parlor trick, that does not get, that does not qualify, that does not earn you in LAP. So what is it? He says that, uh, um, he's, and he says that even, the Rambam says that even the Jewish people did not fully believe Moshe, getting back to your point, Ellen, did not fully believe Moshe to be a prophet until the revelation on Harsinai. In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu comes to the Jewish people in Mitzrayim. At the beginning of the story, it says, my dear friends, I was a shepherd working for my shver. I was working for my father-in-law. And it kept us far apart from each other so we wouldn't argue politics. And I was out there with the sheep. And I saw a burning bush. And God spoke to me from the burning bush. And he told me that I'm the prophet who's going to take you out of the land of Mitzrayim. He said, tell us something which is interesting. We, we, we don't really believe you because you're telling us that you had this miraculous experience of conversation with God. That's absurd. God doesn't talk from burning bushes. What you're saying doesn't make any sense. And that's not the way things goes. We don't even know who you are. You weren't even brought up in Mitzrayim. They, they didn't really believe him. They wanted to believe him, but they didn't really believe him fully up until the event of Har Sinai when they actually saw God speak to Moshe Rabbeinu. Then once they saw that indeed God does communicate with Moshe Rabbeinu directly, and we saw it with our own eyes, again, how they were able to confirm that that was God and not uh, ignore the man behind the curtain or whatever it is. So that somehow they, they had the experience where they knew that to, to be certain. So it was only once they had the event at Harsinai, then that was verified by the entire Jewish nation. Now we know, now we have absolute conf- confirmation of the existence of prophecy number one, and that Moshe Rabbeinu is the man whose prophecy has now been confirmed by all Klaiso. Now we have, now that's the event, like we said in Rav Weinberg's story, that's the event of the Rebbe coming to the Tzibor and saying, I want this son to be the Rebbe, not that, uh, that son to be the Rebbe, not, the, my, not my other son. So once we had that experience, this now confirms all of the claims in the Torah of somebody being a Navi, they're all now confirmed once we have the event at Harsinai. Because until then, Avram Avinu, we, we, there's a story, Avram Avinu spoke to God. God said to Avram, go ahead and take your son and go ahead and offer him as a korban on, the, on such and such a mountain. What? Why would we believe that God would go ahead and say such a seemingly absurd uh, demand of Avram Avinu to go ahead and take the one son that he had from his beloved wife, and they've been they've been chalishing for decades to have a child. We should believe that God told the Avram Avinu that he should take that son and sacri- offer him as a sacrifice. We shouldn't believe that because it doesn't it, it doesn't make any sense to us, and it's a claim which is not verified. So we wouldn't really believe that Avram Avinu was a prophet because we have no we have no independent certification that he was an LAP. How do we know ultimately that he is an LAP? Because a licensed uh, authentic prophet. Only because Moshe Rabbeinu now did confirm his nevuah in the in the presence of all Klai Yisrael. Now, once we have somebody who is a certified navi, certified by God, not many people could claim certified by God, but once you have that God certification, that heksha, which everybody trusts, that Moshe Rabbeinu is actually a navi, then if Moshe Rabbeinu says, and you know what, 
Avram Avinu was a Navi, and Sari Menu was a Navi, and Yosef was a Navi, and Yaakov was a Navi, and Rachel was a Navi. Once we know, then, Avram, then Moshe Avinu can then tell us, oh yeah, these were also authentic Navim, even though there was no independent confirmation based on their own doing. But now I, as a God-certified Navi, I could confirm that they're reliable. And you could trust me that they're all considered to be reliable. And the stories that they tell you about the communication they had with God is authentic because I say so. So in that regard, because ultimately, the only way we believe in any nevuah whatsoever ultimately has to stem from Moshe Rabbeinu. Because he's the only one who had confirmation in front of the entire nation of the communication between God and himself. And therefore... So that's the reason why, or certainly all of the Nevi'im afterwards, so Moshe Rabbeinu via the Torah, or God via Moshe Rabbeinu via the Torah, went ahead and gave us the criteria which we use to now in the future confirm whether somebody is an authentic LAP or whether the person is just a fraud who's just trying to make some money, uh, you know, a gig on the side, trying to fool other people to do whatever it is that they're going to do. And that's, a, that's, a, that's a, so all of those people, we now have uh, a, a, a checklist, as it were, or we have a test which the Navi is going to have to be able to demonstrate his capacity to, uh, to predict the future accurately. And then we know that basically, since these were the guidelines which Moshe Rabbeinu shared with us, that's how we know that this person now has authenticated himself as a prophet. And as we said, everybody in the past who preceded Moshe Rabbeinu ultimately if it wasn't for Moshe Rabbeinu, they'd be no different than anybody else claiming to have had some sort of revelation and communication with God, and therefore you should now follow my religion and give me all of your money, or whatever it, uh, you know, whatever the uh, the claim was going to be. So it's in that way that Moshe is really the Av Hanavim. That's why the Rambam assigns him that status as being the father of the Nevi'im. He's the father, not in the sense of being first chronologically, but he's first in terms of being certified and authenticated by God. What do you do and then once Jonah? we know that, everybody else's nevuah, whether it's preceded Moshe Rabbeinu or after Moshe Rabbeinu, ultimately their authenticity has to trace itself back to Moshe Rabbeinu. Because without being able to trace back to Moshe Rabbeinu, nobody is, a, is considered to be a reliable prophet because you're no different than anybody else who claims to have had some sort of vision and some sort of communication of God that this is what God now wants at this point in, the, in history. And he charged me with the task to go ahead and get all of you, get you all to go ahead and do, uh, to, to do, to do all of that. What do you say so, about Jonah? What do you mean? The prophecy didn't come true. Which prophecy? That Nineveh is going to be destroyed in forty days. Right. So the, the, the uh, so the, uh, the um, when Hakadosh Baruch Hu gives a uh, a nevuah or a prophet comes along and tells us something bad is going to happen, so it's not necessarily going to happen because tshuva could go ahead and change the facts on the ground. When more, of a, more of a warning than a, a prediction. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, 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 that could be. We'd have to look at the exact terminology over there in Sefer Yoh, but even if it was something which was bad, even if it was a prophecy, so something which Akadosh Baruch Hu says is going to be bad will only happen in the event that circumstances don't change. But through, excuse me, through the power of tshuva, so then you change the, the circumstance, change the facts on the ground, like we talked about with tefillah. The purpose of tefillah is not to change God's mind, 
It's to change who we are. And once we're different, then the original decree, which was coming our way, is no longer relevant, is no longer applicable. So when HaKadosh Baruch Hu promises something for good, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu will never change his mind. Even if we change, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is still not going to go ahead and withdraw the promise that he made for something which is good. But a, 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 a statement about something which is going to be bad, so that could potentially change in the event that people do tshuva, as evidence from the uh, the, uh, the the Sefer Yonah story. Um, now, one other uh, thing, um, one last uh, point, and then we'll uh, we'll finish. And that is that there's another reason why it's unreasonable, even for a seemingly honest and well-established prophet, to have the power to change the Torah. So this is something which is going to uh, it's going to be coming up in the uh, the the next the uh, really the the next uh, this is now the bridge to the next uh, uh, principle which we're going to get to after uh, after Pesach, but uh, based on what we have said we now have a little bit uh, deeper insight as to why it is that a navi cannot come along even somebody who's seemingly an LAP a licensed authentic prophet they also can't come along and say you know what. God spoke to me and he decided that this law is now going to change. Why is a Navi, if somebody has seemingly authenticated themselves as being a reliable, trustworthy Navi, a prophet, so why can they not come along and start changing things in the Torah? So the reason why this is so is because if the possibility existed for future Navim to go ahead and to amend or change or revise anything in the Torah whatsoever, so then it's at that point, the entire Torah loses its credibility. If it's something which is unchanging, it's universal, and it's applicable in all places, in all times, in all eras, in all circumstances, so then that is something which is, that we expect is something which is divine. But in the event that things could change based on circumstances, and a Navi could come along, would have even the potential to come along and say, I had a new revelation, a new testament, a new revelation, and God is now, this is Torah 2.0, and there's now going to be a new version of, uh, of that. So then there's really, uh, what will happen is, is uh, the entire foundation of Torah now crumbles, and nothing is considered to be sacred anymore. Because all we need to do is somebody come along and give a good reason why this law has changed or that law has changed or this is no longer applicable or that is no longer applicable. And you see the whole thing ends up being somewhat of a, uh, of a joke. I think we're experiencing that a little bit now. I'm not sure where it's holding uh, this week, but I know that the Pope is struggling with the uh, policy on the LBGTQ. Did I get that right? Community. I may have mixed up the acronym over there, but he's, oh, get, he's get, what? You got it. You got it. So he's getting a lot of pressure as far as that is concerned, because the the Catholics, at least, <coughs> so it's an essential thing that there's infallibility, that Pope and Popes cannot be wrong. And now the Pope is coming along and he's seemingly overturning what has been a long-standing policy as far as Catholics are concerned and their attitudes towards homosexuality and homosexual marriage and stuff of that, uh, that sort. And once, uh, and I think there's a uh, somewhat of a, of a feeling that if he could go ahead and he could start manipulating that, and the assumption is that it's due to public pressure, 
that he's getting pressure from various groups to go ahead and make accommodations or to make changes or to be more understanding or to be more compassionate, whatever you're going to go ahead and say to that. So, but once you can go ahead and you can start changing things because of that, so that means everything can be changed. In the whole veracity of the Torah, the whole reliability and credibility of the Torah comes along and is going to, uh, would, would, would crumble. And therefore, uh, in Judaism, so that's why one of the, the not, we have rules as far as how we're going to go ahead and authenticate an LAP, the licensed uh, authentic prophet. And as well, there are rules where in the event that even somebody who's an LAP comes along and tries to change Torah or claim that he received the prophecy that the Torah should be changed. So that's an immediate revocation of his license. That's a forfeiture of your uh, your profit license. I don't know if you could ever get your license restored once you go ahead and you uh, you do that. But that's the immediate thing because once you do that, so now you've undermined everything. And once the Torah is undermined, we don't know that any of the Avim. We uh, once again, we today know that Moshe Rabbeinu is the father of the Avim because the Torah tells us so, and we believe the Torah is authentic because of all the claims which are included in the Torah, which have been passed on for generations. Once you start undermining the Torah, then even Moshe Rabbeinu's status in, in, in Jewish history is now questionable. And once that falls apart, then we're really left with nothing. The whole structure just collapses over the, uh, uh, under the weight of itself. Once you go ahead and you pull out that the, the pin, and that's why it's something which, uh, which uh, uh, prophets are never going to be able to come along and tell us that Going to change on a permanent basis. In case you're going to ask me about the uh, Eliyahu and Har Carmel or something like that. So that was Hurrah, Shah. Sometimes then once uh, once in a lifetime, once uh, in history, you could go ahead and you could pull off such a thing. But as an ongoing basis to overturn the, a law, so that's something which is uh, which is not possible. Okay, Della, did I swing back around to get all of your stuff? I think so, yeah. Okay, excellent. Okay, we're good, everybody? Thank you, Rabbi. All righty. So Thursday, um, what we're going to do is that the class